The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, this is the word of the Lord. After this message, kids, if you would like, you will be invited to follow Miss Lindsay to an elementary message, and we'll have you back here by the end of the service. Or you can stay here in the room. We have a sermon quiz and a kids bulletin that you can use as well. But this is Lindsay Knapp. Lindsay is our director of kids ministry here, and uh, she is, and she does so much more than that. Um, but uh, Lindsay is, uh, has got her hands in so many things, uh, making this place run, and does an amazing job. And uh, I'm excited that we get to hear from her this morning. Come on in here, guys. Come on. You got this. Hello, my friends. It is so good to see you in service today. So we have a very special, important job today. We have to help teach the grown-ups about something called Advent. So grown-ups, do you think you can put on your listening ears for me? You have to reach up like this. Can y'all show the grown-ups how to do this? Reach up like this, grab your listening ears, and put them on. Very nice. Okay, we're going to show the grown-ups exactly how to do that. So remember, We have our listening ears on, and if we want to answer something, we raise our hand, and I'll call on you. Grown-ups, do you got that? Are we good? Give me a thumbs up if you got it. Amazing. Okay, friends, I am going to ask something really big of you this morning. I'm going to hand you each a box, and I'm going to ask you not to open it. I know that when you get this box, all you're going to want to do is open it because you want to see what's inside it. But when you get the box... 
I want you to have so much self-control and not open it. And if you don't open the box, then I'll have a very special treat for you at the end. I'm not going to tell you what the special treat is, but it starts with candy and ends with cane. Okay? So just know, I'm going to hand you some boxes. I'm going to get you one box per person. And I know you're going to want to open it so bad, but don't open it. And if you don't open it, then you will get a special treat at the end. Okay? So we're going to hand out the boxes right now. And you just sit and you hold it and think about the candy cane that you'll get if you don't open it. All right, can you take one? Just, just take one. Here you go. Uh, red, like all candy canes. All right, don't open the box. All right, so as we're passing out the rest of our boxes, raise your hand if you've ever heard the word Advent before. I've heard the word before. Have you heard the word before? Adults, have you heard the word Advent before? Thank you very much. Okay, Advent is from a Latin word, Adventus. Can everybody say Adventus with me? Adventus, very nice. Adventus, you're so smart. Now you know a Latin word. Adventus means coming. And Advent is the part of of the year where we anticipate that Jesus is coming. But did you know that we've actually been waiting for Jesus to come since the very beginning of time? Like not just in December every year. We've been waiting for Jesus to come since the beginning of time. So raise your hand if you can tell me who were the first two people on the earth. The first two people on the earth. Yes. Wyatt, can you tell me? God was here, and then who were the first two people he created? Exactly. So Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, God promised them a rescue. He promised them that Jesus would come. And so they were waiting on Jesus to come. And then fast forward a bunch. There was a person named Abraham. And he was waiting on Jesus to come too. God promised him that he would make him the father of lots of people and that he would bless his family. And he had to wait on Jesus too, just like we have to wait on Jesus. And then fast forward a bunch, and we get to someone named Moses. Can you say Moses? And he had to wait on Jesus to come too. God did lots of really cool stuff through him, but he had to wait on Jesus to come just like we do. And then we fast forward a bunch over here, and there was someone named David. Can you say David? And God gave David a very special promise. He promised David that he would send a Savior, Jesus, and that that Savior would be descended from David. So David was like Jesus' great, 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 great grandpa. Do any of you have a great, 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 great grandpa? Wyatt, cool, cool, cool. Love it. You might have a grandpa, but you probably don't have a great, 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 great grandpa. But they did exist. (laughs) Lots of greats. So then we had all these people who were waiting for Jesus. And then we had 400 years of quiet. Can everybody get really small? Like they're really quiet. God was really quiet for 400 years. And he didn't say a lot in those 400 years. And those people had to wait on Jesus too. And y'all know because you're holding your boxes and you really want to open them, it's really hard to wait on stuff. Also, Have you ever had to wait to open something like, say, maybe a Christmas present? Isn't it the hardest thing ever to wait to open Christmas presents? Because you can see them, and they're under the tree, and you're so excited, and you might shake it and try to figure out what it is, but you don't know because you can't open it till Christmas. Okay, now, you can open your box, and I want you to tell me what's inside. Open your box, and then raise your hand and tell me what's inside. Open it up. 
Who can tell me what's inside it? Yes. Nothing. Nothing. Are you sure? Can you look closer? Does anybody have something in their box? No. No. You don't have anything in your box. Does anybody know why you don't have anything in your box? You don't have anything in your box because we're still waiting. We're still waiting for Jesus to come. This is the season of Advent, and until Christmas, we're waiting on Jesus to come. And did y'all know, even though Christmas is super fun and Christmas presents are so wonderful, and I hope you all get lots of them, Jesus is the really big, important Christmas present. And he's what we're waiting for. Y'all have done so beautifully today. You taught all the adults something they didn't know. I'm so proud of you. And since you all helped me teach the grown-ups, we're all going to get a candy cane. Cool? Okay, wave to the adults and go away. And I'm going to go with you. Ready? Okay, stand up and let's march out. Say bye-bye. Adults, have fun. <laughs> that was fun. I, uh, now I'm nervous. I'm supposed to do that next week, and that's going to be hard to top. Maybe I'll just put something in the box, and then that'll just, <laughs> that'll just <laughs> and I'll, I'll gain some ground that way. All right, well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at the passage that TK read this morning from Matthew chapter 1. Um, as we enter in, we're, we're in this series called Encounters with Christ, where each week we've been looking at different encounters Jesus has with people. And, uh, and what's fascinating about studying those passages is you learn so much about who Jesus is and the way that he interacts with people. Uh, we live in a culture, I think, that, that co-ops Jesus a lot, to, and we have a lot of ideas of, of who Jesus is and what he's into and what he's, what he's about, and, and um, a lot of times we, we'll, we'll kind of think that Jesus is really just into the same things we are, uh, when in fact, when, when you look at the passages of Scripture, he's strong. <laughs> he's got strong things to say to us about how to live, how to worship, how to follow him, how to live as a person who has been made in the image of God. And we're moving into this series of passages um, that are going to center on the nativity story, uh, largely from Matthew and Luke, the story of the birth of Jesus. And we always run a risk when we do this. We run a risk when we get into passages about the nativity. um, And the risk is this, these are going to be familiar. And whenever we encounter familiar biblical passages, it can be easy for many of us who have maybe grown up around these things, grown up with these stories, uh, to just kind of tune out because we already think we know what the passage is about. Uh, We think we know what there is to know about it. And so I want to just here at the beginning uh, take a minute to talk about um, biblical literacy and and to just... Uh, kind of have a, a biblical, biblical literacy moment for a second, if you will, about that has to do with how do you encounter uh, and engage with familiar passages of Scripture. And then, and then we'll talk about this Joseph passage. So I'm a person who has a very high view of the Bible. I believe it to be the inspired Word of God, that it's without error in its original manuscripts, that it is given to us as an authoritative rule for life and faith. I trust it. I I want to and pray to and aspire to live my life according to it, um, both as an individual and as a pastor. Uh, So I'm letting you know kind of where I stand in my relationship with with the Bible, that it is uh, the believer's authoritative, reliable source uh, for life and for faith. And so when it comes then to understanding the Bible and reading the Bible well, 
I believe in the importance of staying tied to the text, of, of looking at what's on the page, of paying attention to what's on the page, to being tied to what's on the page, that what's explicit in Scripture should guide our understanding of what Scripture is saying. I believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. If I want to understand one passage of Scripture, it helps to know other passages of Scriptures that speak into what's happening in that context. So with that being said... I want to also say this, that when we read scripture, we have to read it as human beings. And, and you may say, well, I don't know how else you would read something, but hear me on this for a second. When we read scripture, we have to read it as people, meaning that we read, and when we read, we should consider the human experience to help us see things that are not necessarily explicit in a passage, but more implicit. And I believe that we're meant to do this. We're meant to, to read scripture with engaged imaginations. So biblical texts, ancient texts in general, are written in thrift, meaning they're very spare. There's not a lot of extra words. And the reason for this is ancient texts were recorded during a time when, when there weren't Kinko's and FedEx supply stores where you could go buy reams of paper and, and you could just say as much as you wanted, that the vellums and parchments and papyruses were, were costly, they were expensive, and they were rare. And so what that meant was ancient prose was sparsely written. There aren't a lot of rabbit trails. There's not a lot of flourishing, flowery descriptions of things. There's not even really a lot of adjectives and adverbs. It's very, very terse. And so scripture writers, they counted on readers to supply. They count on the reader to supply inferred information. And so we do this in part by drawing on the human experience, right? So when we read, we can fill things in. We can fill in emotion. We can say, here's a scene where David is being confronted by a prophet about adultery. We can infer certain things about the emotional tension in that room. Right? We're, we're supposed to, it's not necessarily on the page saying, and David had all of these feelings, but we, we can bring that and we can help, we can fill that in. We can picture scenes, right? We can, we can even imagine visceral things like weather, a storm on the Sea of Galilee. We can imagine that. We can, we can imagine things like the smell of something, the visceral things. And I think that to honor a biblical text, we have to do this. We have to engage our imaginations. In fact, if we don't bring our imaginations to the text, I don't think we're reading it as we're supposed to because we're not reading it as people. Because this is how language works, right? Is I have something in my head that I've imagined, that I've known, that I've learned, and I want to convey it to you and so the way that I do that is I take my thinking, what's in my brain, and I distill it down into some language, some words, and then I give you those words, and then you take those words inside of you, and you interpret in your mind, you sort of unpack them, and, you, and, it, and it's, like, it's like one of those bounce houses where you turn on the, the blower and it just sort of inflates, and, there it, you know, and that's how you see it. This is how language works, right? We transfer not just words, but we transfer ideas, and so I'm taking time to talk about this right now because when we come to familiar passages of Scripture, one of the first things we often do is disengage our imaginations. And we disengage our imaginations because we think we already know what there is to know. And ironically, when we disengage our imaginations, we then cut off the ability 
to discover insights into the text that we might never see if our imaginations were not engaged. And so when we read these nativity stories, where I want to start with this is I want to tell you that we're reading a passage today, we're looking at a passage today where there's a person named Joseph who is visited by an angel and is told that his fiancée is pregnant with God's baby. I defy you to not engage your imagination in a story like that. It's meant to cause us to lean in and to say, well, this is not a common tale. <laughs> you know, there's something happening here. So, so, so that's my appeal, is that as we go through these Christmas nativity stories, as we read about shepherds and wise men and Herod and stars and angels visiting people and a virgin conceiving and all of these things, I would, I would suggest to you that we're not taking liberties with the text by engaging our imagination, but we're actually reading it as we ought. And we're reading it as human beings, okay? And so let's get into David's story. We're going to imagine, or not David's, Joseph's story. I'm probably going to do that more than once because I just will. Um, Joseph. We're talking about Joseph. So Joseph, this passage is, the way I would summarize this, is this passage is about Joseph having a crisis. This is a crisis. So if you've ever had a crisis in your life, I look around, I know some of your stories, I know that some of you have had significant crises and I know what they are, but here's what I do know. Everyone in this room is either coming out of a crisis, in the middle of a crisis, we're soon to go into a crisis because that's how the world works, right? It happens. What's a crisis? A crisis is an unexpected event that changes the direction of future events. Uh, earlier this year, my son and I, my son Chris, he's 18, he's in college. Um, as a graduation gift, we took a father-son trip to Ireland, just the two of us, with a backpack each and that was it. Uh, so no luggage except for what we were carrying on our backs. And we had this, this trip where we went around Ireland and Northern Ireland and stayed in, barely, rarely stayed in the same place twice. And we just were on foot. We were going everywhere. And in the process of entering the country, one of us lost a passport. And we went to the customs officials there in the airport in order to enter the country of Ireland. So we're in the, the Dublin International Airport and we, we can't find it. It's just gone. We don't know what happened, but it's gone. And uh, they said, I'm not going to try to do an Irish accent, but the, the customs official said, it's not the end of the world. Uh, took us into this special little room, asked us a bunch of questions. We showed them some paperwork, and they gave us a visa for the missing passport. And so off we went into the country, and we did our trip. And it came time to go home. And it was a Saturday that we were going to fly home. Ireland has what they call, uh, over in Europe, they have what they call bank holidays, um, which are just kind of national holidays where everything shuts down. And uh, there was a bank holiday that Monday, and we were flying home on a Saturday morning. And so we show up at the airport Saturday morning really early because we know we're missing a passport, we have a visa, we're probably going to have to go through some extra steps. So we go to the ticket counter to begin this process and they say to us, you cannot enter the United States without a valid passport. And we explained to them, well, we got into this country with it. And they said, yes, this is Ireland. That's the United States. It's not the same rules. Um, 
And we're like, well, we don't, what are we supposed to do? And the lady looked at us and she said, um, you need to go to the U.S. Embassy in Dublin and file for an emergency passport. Um, and you can get that the same day or sometimes it will take up to two weeks. Um, and the next available opportunity you will have to do that because Monday's a bank holiday would be Tuesday morning is the earliest you can show up and begin that process. And then you know what she did? She looked past us to the people behind us in line. Next. And there we stood, having been, having been given this information, and it was information that incited a crisis, and we had to do something with it, but once we had the information, that was all that she really needed to do with us. And so there we were, and we were standing, and we had to figure out, what are we going to do? And it shook us, because we had to adapt, because the instinct when you enter a crisis is to adapt or resist, right? I'm going to resist the crisis, and I'm going to argue with the person who's telling me this. But she told it to us in such a way, and maybe you've had this experience with somebody behind a desk at a government office or someplace, where they just tell you in such a matter-of-fact way that you realize without them even having to say it that the conversation is over, and all of the information that needs to be uh, transferred from one person to another, it's happened, and now it's my responsibility to go figure out what to do. Um, so we ended up with a few extra days <laughs> in Ireland, and uh, that was that. Joseph has crisis. He has a crisis in his life where he thinks things are going to go a certain way, and he's given some information. And it's not information he really gets to bend. Uh, it's just information he has to absorb, and he has to respond to, and he has to deal with it. And he can do one of two things, which you can do in a crisis. You can resist or you can adapt. So let's imagine we're Joseph, because it's okay to imagine. Let's imagine we're Joseph. You're a person who, you're, your hands are rough because you've been working a job, apprenticing in a trade for as long as you can remember. It's what your family does. It's what you've known from the time you were little, that this is what you're going to do. You're going to be a person who makes things. You build. You work with your hands. You live in a town called Nazareth, and there's a girl in your town named Mary. And you are engaged to her. You plan to marry her. And sometimes you think about her in the middle of the day because that's what young men do when it comes to the person they want to marry. You think about them. And so you think about Mary. Sometimes you, you whisper her name just kind of as you're doing your thing because there's a beautiful musical quality, Mary, Mary. And so you say the name. And you think of her, and you think of the generations who have come before you. You think of your parents, you think of grandparents, you think of aunts and uncle, uncles, and how, how these couples <clears throat> have always just kind of seemed to you to be units. They're, they're tandems. They're, they're one thing made up of two people. And you imagine becoming that with Mary. Not being two people living in two homes, living two lives, but being one thing in your community. And so you imagine the two of you as a unit. You imagine the two of you becoming woven into the fabric of your community as young couples do. You imagine this. Many of you in this room, this is kind of what you're doing right now with your life, right? You're, you're, you're in that process of, of being woven into a, a community. And so you have a trade. You have a job you do. You've apprenticed in a craft. You have a faith. 
and it's a rich tradition that's been handed down from generation to generation. You belong to an expectant people who, like Lindsay was saying, have been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah's coming. You don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but you're part of a people who's looking forward to that. We know from the nativity passages in Luke and Matthew both that Mary and Joseph were very traditional, observant Jewish people. So they weren't rogue. There was nothing about Mary and Joseph where Jesus was saying, I'm choosing you because you're just kind of on the fringe. You're you're on the edge of things. You're doing things a little bit different. I kind of like how you're mixing it up. They were traditional people. And they were very traditional and very ordinary in every sense when you would look at them. And so as Joseph, you know, you know, you know who you're going to be in your world. You already know who you're going to be. You know who you're going to be in your town. And you look forward to it. You look forward to it because it's what you know. And the path you're on is a path that is clear. These are reasonable imaginings, right? I'm probably off on some of this. But it's, it helps us get in there where you look at a guy like Joseph and he's a guy who has a course, And he's expecting it to go the way it always goes. And then comes this crisis. And the crisis is that Mary is pregnant. And there's no way the child is Joseph's. There's just no way. And so he has to decide what to do. This is the crisis. Joseph has to decide what to do with the news that Mary is pregnant. And his choices, there are a couple of them. And the choice is, one, he can honor her reputation at the expense of his own. And he can look like a fool, like somebody who got cheated on. Or he can honor his reputation and save his reputation by sacrificing hers. And cut her loose. And... Let things fall. Because here's the, here's the reality of things. That was a culture where pregnancy before marriage was culturally impossible to hide and was looked on as um, not the way things were supposed to go. And so they would have to deal with this. Because Mary is pregnant and because they're not married, they are looking at dealing with the opinions and the imaginings and the rumors and the whispers of their community about who they are. Either they didn't wait until they were married or Mary was, had a guy on the side or something happened and the child that Joseph is trying to raise is in the very literal sense a bastard child in his community. And this is the position that he's in and the thing that he's having to look at and the thing he's having to figure out. And so, he has this crisis, and the earth shifts under his feet, and everything has changed. No matter what he does, things are just different now. And then an angel appears to him one night in a dream and tells him, don't be afraid, the child that Mary is carrying was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that boy is the Christ And he will save people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus will not just be a mere prophet, but he is God himself. He is God with us. 
And Jesus' life that he would go on to live would bear this out. Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, he makes the makes the statement. He says, Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims, and by his resurrection, convinced his closest Jewish followers that he was not just a prophet telling them how to find God, but that he was God himself come to find us. And so along with this news of why Mary has conceived, the angel tells Joseph something else. And what he tells him is go through with the plans to take her as your bride. Go through with the wedding. And he does. And Joseph has now found himself folded in to the story of the salvation of the world. And he has been given this unexpected honor of stepfathering the Son of God and doing it in a context where there will always be people who will look at him in that position and question the morality of both him and his wife. And that's what he's brought into. That's his crisis. In a crisis, we either adapt or we resist. What do you do? I want to I focus on the crisis of Joseph because here's the thing. Christmas is one of those times that can creep up on us as a commercial holiday with all of the trimmings and all of the things that fill up a calendar so fast. And it can be one of those things that the, the holiday season just kind of happens to us. It runs over us like a car, right? And we just, we just feel like, I, I honestly just can't wait for January 2nd, you know? When the decks are cleared, all this is behind, we can take a breath and then take stock of what just happened to us. But the Advent season is the time when we remember what the angel told Joseph. And what the angel told Joseph is a Savior has been born who will deliver people from their sin. He is Christ the Lord. And we hear this news and I would submit to you and I would encourage you as you approach Christmas and as I approach Christmas that we take the Christmas story and we ask the Lord, Lord, help me treat the nativity story as a crisis. Help me receive it and treat it as a crisis because you're telling me something that I either have to adapt to or I am going to resist. Because what you're telling me is one, I need a savior. Two, I've been given one, and I've been given only one. And the one that I've been given is the Son of God. And we come to the Christmas story here and now in 2018 with the hindsight of the rest of Scripture. And what we have in the hindsight of the rest of Scripture is this. You cannot separate Advent from Easter. You cannot make sense of the celebration of the birth of Christ without having to take into account the reality of the death and the resurrection of Christ. The reason we celebrate the birth of Jesus is because he has come to be what? To be the savior of sinners. How did he come to be the savior of sinners? He came to do that by living in our place, living a life of perfect righteousness that none of us could live on our own, dying in our place, as people whose sin earns us the wage of death. And Jesus takes that death on himself 
and gives his righteousness to us, what Martin Luther called the great transfer, where all of my sin is placed upon Christ on the cross, all of his righteousness is placed upon me. And when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And Christ then defeats the grave because it couldn't hold him. And the reason it couldn't hold him is because he himself did not owe that wage. And he rises from the grave victorious over death itself and gives me then life in his name. This is the crisis of Christmas. Either you need that or you don't. And there's no middle. And if you do, the Christmas story is telling you not just a story about Jesus, but it's telling you a story about you. And this angel is delivering a message to us that I pray would awaken a crisis in us a theological crisis that makes us sit with the implications of what it means that God has come into the world in the form of a baby for the purpose of delivering us from the guilt of our sin against him. That's why we celebrate Christmas. So may the Holy Spirit do this in us. May he do for us in our waking and in our sleeping, what he did for Joseph in his dream. And that is impress upon us the truth that a Savior has come and that he is Jesus and that Jesus is God himself. And I pray that as a result of that, we won't just endure the Christmas season and we won't waste it, but that we will embrace it as a theological crisis and that we would move into these events and consider what the angel told Joseph and what scripture tells us, which is this. That which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the stories that become familiar, because when they become familiar, it means we're, we're taking them in, we're absorbing them, we're learning them. And Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that you would help us to, to welcome the crisis of Christmas, that we would welcome the, the news that is being conveyed that we need a sinner and we're being given one, and only one. And the one that we're given is the Son of God, who is reconciling us to our Maker by His life and His death and His resurrection. I pray that you would help us to always connect Christmas and Easter in our minds, that we would see the connection between the two, the incarnation, the coming in the flesh for the purpose of laying down a life for us. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for this communion table that we come to now that is uh, the eventuality and the, and, the, and the outplaying of the message that the angel gave Joseph that a savior would be born who would save people from their sin. This table reminds us how that happened. So, Lord, humble us with this table. Cause our hearts to worship you, and I pray, Lord, that you would make it that our seasons, that our celebrations of Christmas are marked by our worship of you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.